In a quaint corner of northern England, a discovery was made that would send shockwaves through the world of the paranormal and beyond. Two young boys stumbled upon a pair of mysterious stone heads in their own backyard, objects that could not be accounted for by any known means. The eerie expressions carved upon these tiny heads, no larger than their small fists, were a source of fascination for the boys and for the entire community. The press soon dubbed these mysterious objects the Hexham Heads, and what followed was a series of events that defied explanation and left experts from multiple fields, including museums, archaeologists, geologists and the media, scratching their heads in wonder. This discovery was only the beginning of a journey into the unknown, where truth and fantasy are forever intertwined. is to delve into the unknown, to shed light on the unexplained and to offer new perspectives on the world around us. We would like to express our appreciation for your support and kindly request that you consider sharing your thoughts with others by liking, subscribing or leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is invaluable in helping us to grow and improve our content. Please note that the content of this podcast may contain unsettling descriptions and discussions which may be distressing to some listeners. As always, we exercise caution and sensitivity when presenting these stories and remind our listeners to take care if they find such material disturbing. Furthermore, we would like to acknowledge and pay homage to the victims of these stories. Our thoughts and condolences are with them and their families, and we ask that you join us in sparing a moment of reflection and empathy for those who have suffered. Join us as we explore the unknown and unravel the mysteries of the world in As Yet Unexplained. Colin Robson was weeding in the yard of his family's home in Reed Avenue in Hexham on February in 1970 or possibly 1971. The exact dates are difficult to ascertain as published tales disagree on the specifics of the date. Hexham is a market town located around 20 miles west of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in northern England in the Pine Valley. Colin was digging in the garden when, to his astonishment, he found something that looked like a lump of stone, roughly the size of a tennis ball. This shape was adorned with a particular canonical projection on one side. He discovered that the shape was crudely carved with human qualities and that this canonical change of shape was originally meant to be a neck, 
when he removed the earth that was clinging to it. Colin cried out to his younger brother Leslie, excited by what he had discovered. As the two lads continued to work the soil further, Leslie would eventually discover a second head. It has been theorised that as the heads both had a neck, then possibly they were formally connected to something else, perhaps a little body or a pedestal. They appeared to be made of a stone material. The carvings themselves were quite straightforward. The heads were described in a number of ways by those who had held them, although they were commonly believed to be palm-sized and somewhat smaller than a tennis ball. The heads were not very creative. They looked like simple humanoids with tiny pointed faces and nostrils. Despite its simplicity, several people assigned curiously gender-centric connotations to the barely expressive heads. Two separate types of stones appeared to be involved. The first stone had a skull-like appearance. The gendered characteristics of the two objects and specific deductions drawn from their facial expressions have frequently been the focus of descriptions of the faces of these little carved stone balls. Everyone who saw it felt it seemed male. It was given the moniker, The Boy, as a result. It glittered with quartz crystals that were incorporated into the stone itself and had a greyish-green colour. Paul Screeton said in his 2010 book, Quest for the Hexam Heads, that the head known as the boy was carved with hair fashioned in stripes going from front to back. Additionally, it was much heavier than cement or concrete. The second head, known as the girl, was said to resemble a witch, with the hair combed backwards off the forehead in what could have been a bun. The second head, known variously as the girl, old woman or hag, depending on the source, is for some reason given a less favourable description in Hexam Head literature. Don Robbins characterised her as having wildly bulging eyes and a powerful beaked nose. She also had traces of a yellow or red colour in her hair, indicating that these heads had formerly been painted. Moving Heads The Robson family house served as the repository for the artefacts. They reported that strange things began to torment them as soon as the heads entered the room. The heads were said to turn at night in order to look in specific directions. Things happened that, in other circumstances, may have been attributed to a poltergeist. Bottles allegedly being abruptly thrown across rooms and the heads allegedly moving when no one was in the room. As they entered the home, the heads had transformed from being interesting objects into horrifying ones. When one of their beds was covered in shattered glass, the sisters of Colin and Leslie were sufficiently alarmed to leave their room. According to legend, a strange bush appeared around Christmas time and an eerie light shined where the heads had been found. In late 2017, the website hexamheads.wordpress.com was lucky enough to contact Colin Robson. 
the Robson's pet parrot Sparky was the subject of the first of the inquiries. A number of publications have connected the pet's death with activity by the heads since the budgie was said to have passed away about the same time as the heads were discovered. Question. Could you tell me a bit more about when your budgie died and you buried him in the garden? I've read that you thought that the heads had killed the budgie. Is that true? Colin. Yes, we did have a budgie that died, but we did not think it was the heads that caused it, as far as I remember. Yes, we buried it in the garden. The journalist then inquired about the mysterious luminous shrub that was rumoured to be in the garden. He questioned whether the particular location of the bush had anything to do with where the budgie had been interred. Question. When you buried the budgie, it was reported that a glowing bush grew in the garden. Do you remember anything else about this, and do you believe it was the heads? Colin. Yes, he was buried in the garden, and yes, there was a strange small bush that grew in the corner of our back garden, but the bush grew in the exact place that the heads were unearthed. And yes, the bush used to have a strange glow at night, almost as if it was producing its own light. The website then went on to ask a couple of general questions. Question. Did the heads feel hot in your hands when you held them? Colin. No, the heads felt cold, if anything, but they did make your hands tingle. Question. Have you ever experienced any other paranormal events at any other time in your life? Colin. Yes, I've had quite a few instances and I do seem to have a sense to pick up spirit presence. The poltergeist phenomena, which is usually triggered by households with adolescent children and fits in perfectly with the demographics of the Robson family members, has been suggested as the cause of the events that occurred in the Robson home, rather than the presence of the Hexham heads. Teenage females were residing there during the time of several well-known poltergeist episodes, and there are several reasons why this would be the case. The Sheep Man Although it was not the Robson family's house that was experiencing the paranormal activity, it swiftly extended to the Dodd family next door. Spectral hands had pulled at their little son's hair, but Miss Ellen Dodd, the Robsons' next-door neighbour, had experienced a frightening event that was neither easily nor even remotely explainable by poltergeist activity in their house. She provided the following account of the incidents. I had gone into one of the children's bedrooms to sleep with one of them who was ill. My ten-year-old son, Brian, kept telling me that he felt something touching him. I told him not to be so silly. Then I saw this shape. It came towards me, and I definitely felt it touch me on the legs. Then, on all fours, it moved out of the room. Later, Ellen Dodd described the object that had touched her as having a human and sheep-like appearance. On the aforementioned night, Miss Robson recalls hearing shouts coming from next door, as well as what appeared to be a smash. Her neighbour said that the noises were coming from a werewolf-like creature. 
Additionally, when Miss Dodd went downstairs, she saw that her front door was open. Whatever the cause of this occurrence, Ellen Dodd was obviously alarmed and strongly convinced that it had truly happened to her. It has been stated that she was relocated by the local council as a result. It looks that we may have access to another explanation for the incident. A Stuart Ferrell related a rumour of a prank that same night involving a drunk with a stolen sheep corpse on his back that he had heard in the neighbourhood. The sheep carcass, so the story goes, was stolen from a nearby butcher. Next, the inebriated man stumbled along Reed Avenue. Whatever happened that night, the head's circumstances were covered locally and in the media, and the heads gradually gained a reputation for being dangerous and enigmatic. In depictions in 1970s TV and print media, they were commonly characterised as evil. The heads were transported to Hexham Abbey after being swiftly taken from the house. They were also cared after by the Museum of Antiquities at Newcastle University and occasionally visited Southampton. Numerous experts examined the heads over the course of the next few years, but no true consensus was ever reached as to what material they were made of or even if they were truly ancient artefacts. Craigie The story of the Hexham Heads took on a new spin when truck driver Desmond Craigie stated that the so-called Celtic Heads were just 16 years old in 1972. He insisted that they were not made as Celtic religious votive gifts. However, he steadfastly maintained that he had made them himself for his daughter Nancy. He asserted to have lived in the Reed Avenue house that is now the Robsons' dwelling. He had lived there for 30 years, and in fact, the Robsons had purchased the home the year before his father had stopped renting it. He claimed, I made them, about 16 years ago. I made the heads from bits of stone and mortar simply to amuse my daughter when she was a little girl. I actually made three, but one appears to have got lost. They were out in the garden for years. I definitely made them. I have been laughing my head off about these heads and I cannot understand why all this attention is being paid to them. His daughter once asked him what he did for a living. During that time, Craigie used to manufacture cast stone and concrete pillars. His daughter wanted to understand what her father undertook at work. He specifically made three different heads for her. During his lunch break, he brought them home where she played with them. According to him, Nancy used them as dolls. She would use the silver paper from chocolate wrappers as eyes. Desmond said that he threw one away since it was broken. The others must have just been knocked about and landed where the lads discovered them. Desmond Craigie said that he just wished to correct the record since the recognition that his own work received made him feel ashamed. He said that indicating that the skulls were ancient would mislead people. Dr Anne Ross, a renowned authority on Celtic studies, 
whose interests encompass folklore and Celtic mysticism, as well as archaeology, history and art history, remained unconvinced. She stated that the claim made by Mr. Craigie is unconvincing. It would be odd for Mr. Craigie to build them in this way unless he was conversant with genuine Celtic stone heads. They are not at all crude. But when he was asked to replicate his methods, Craigie's claims were put to the test. Given the less-than-artistic qualities of the original, it was quite surprising to discover that these replicas were inferior to the originals, and of worse quality. Professor Dearman of the University of Newcastle reversed the narrative by concluding that the heads had been created much like concrete process, as opposed to being cut from solid rock. The heads were preserved for a considerable amount of time in the Newcastle Museum of Antiquities, where they were accurately drawn up in the usual archaeological manner, resulting in their official status as archaeological artefacts. Archaeologists and curators like Roger Mickett and David Smith, who were unfamiliar with these strange artefacts, managed or were acquainted with the heads. If these professionals were even aware of the fascinating legend surrounding the artefacts and the associated curse, they were unaffected by it. In Paul Screeton's book, Mickett described the Hexham heads as just archaeological stuff. Others, however, were less circumspect. Prior to the devastating discovery that they had been made by local resident Des Craigie, another professor had enthusiastically welcomed the heads and incorporated them into a Romano-Celtic head cult tradition. There have been several finds of Celtic heads in England, Scotland and continental Europe, although some of them have less certain origins. The bulk of these coarsely carved artefacts may be dated to the pre-Roman Celtic era. The human head was revered as a fertility and protection charm by the Celts of the Kingdom of Brigantia in northern England. The heads of vanquished enemies would also be hung from homes and farms. The later Celtic generation of stone heads are considered by historians to be an echo of the style of cult dedication. Numerous identical heads, particularly in Yorkshire, have been discovered. A lot of them are fastened to building walls. They can be seen on gables, beside wells, or by doorways, where they seem to be conducting their original role as guardian spirits supposed to ward off against evil. It is understood that they resemble stone heads and gargoyles, which are frequently found on the exteriors of old churches. They are strange, occasionally grotesque images that are said to represent a hidden fertility goddess, believed by the Celts many thousands of years ago to ward against evil and maybe bring in fertility of the harvest of the fields. Interestingly, scientific research has not been able to determine the age of the skulls. If the Hexham heads are Celtic, it is not difficult to imagine that they may be bearing some kind of old curse. If they are not, why do they seem to be the root of so many strange and recurring paranormal occurrences? Anne Ross The pagan Celts and pagan Celtic Britain 
are two of Anne Ross's best-known and highly appreciated books that reveal her preferences. Both have been published in several versions. It is fair to say that Anne Ross has a reputation that is not entirely favourable among early medieval archaeologists. After Roger Mickett brought her images and illustrations of the Hexham Heads, she developed an interest in the disputes surrounding them. She delivered a presentation in Newcastle, and Paul Screeton speculates that she may have garnered publicity for a very unremarkable lecture by announcing to the media that she would be stopping by the Heads and speaking with Miss Dodds about her were-sheep encounter. Because Ross came to believe that the heads were Celtic artefacts that may have been cursed and that the yard at Three Reed Avenue where they were discovered had once been a Celtic shrine, she became particularly interested in the heads and the unusual events that occurred after their discovery. She was even contemplating digging in the garden, but she was never successful. It was anticipated that Anne Ross would find these strange little things intriguing. The human head was considered by the Celts to be a sign of divinity and otherworldly abilities, according to her 1967 essay. As well as the fact that she had a long-standing interest in studying the cult of the head in Celtic Europe. Additionally, Celtic heads have been known to appear in backyard gardens in the past, the Leslie Alcock Library at the University of Glasgow has a copy of the Daily Telegraph newspaper article from pagan Celtic Britain that mentions a concentration of carved stone heads that were found in Yorkshire. According to F.W. Perfect, an archaeological correspondent for the Telegraph, their presence became known when several people who had dug up heads in gardens and allotments brought them to a museum in Bradford. Some of them were grotesque, others were crude, and Anne Ross surmised that some of them could be Celtic because of their heavy moustaches. She subsequently published the skulls in the magazine Archaeologica Alienas 5th series, Volume 1, as part of an essay titled Some Fresh Views on Antique Heads, 1973. The article gathers several recently discovered stone heads from the Hadrian's Wall area that all identify as Romano-British. There were two little stone skulls from Hexham documented and illustrated. She cites their archaic appearance and claims that their fine spot would be in accordance with an early date, which makes the account peculiar. There is a footnote in the article that details the conclusions of Professor Frank Hobson's ocular and petrological examination of the small heads at Southampton University. He concluded that the heads were made of sandstone, with the addition of certain colour paints and signs of a lime coating. Amazingly, some dubious science was used to support the publishing of two such disputed and strange artefacts in an academic journal. Ross tried to give the heads some archaeological credibility by including them in an article with other heads that had a better provenance and stronger claims to be genuine. The publication's format, which includes setting the heads in a kind of historical context and highlighting suitable guidelines and standards through petrological study, supports this impression. Problems with dating and a lack of context 
were identified. But there are also obvious problems with this tale. Despite her insistence that the urban finding site was important, there was no proof. It seems that the geological study had errors, and as Anne Ross became more immersed in the head's mythos, actual happenings quickly overshadowed this dry academic account. The Hexham Wolf. Anne Ross made some astounding statements concerning the Hexham Heads on the fairly particular platform of the BBC TV early evening news magazine show Nationwide that were not appropriate for scholarly publishing. The Heads had been carried south with Ross for examination at her own institution, Southampton University, and she had taken them home. She recalled that her Southampton house was being haunted by a giant werewolf that seemed to have followed the heads all the way from the northeast of England. Dr. Ross claims that when she awoke one morning, she noticed a figure that was half man, half wolf, leaving the room. She followed the creature downstairs and observed it moving in the direction of the kitchen. She continued to follow it around the house until it vanished. I didn't connect it with the heads then. We always kept the hall light on and the doors kept open because our small son is a bit frightened of the dark. So there's always a certain amount of light coming into our room. And I woke up and felt extremely frightened. In fact, panic-stricken and terribly, terribly cold. There was a sort of dreadful atmosphere of icy coldness all around me. Something made me look towards the door, and as I looked, I saw this thing going out of it. It was about six foot tall, slightly stooping, and it was black against the white door. It was half animal and half man. The upper part, I would have said, was a wolf, and the lower part was human. It was covered with a kind of black very dark fur. Oh, it went out and I saw it clearly, and then it disappeared. And yet something made me run after it, a thing I normally would never have done. But I felt compelled to run after it. I got out of bed and I ran, and I could hear it going down the stairs. Then it disappeared towards the back of the house. When I got to the bottom of the stairs, I was terrified. It was not a shadowy figure or something she caught in the corner of her eye. It was substantial and loud. And anyone who entered the house made a comment on the distinct feeling of evil or gloom. Although he was thought to be insensitive to this kind of phenomenon, Dr. Ross's husband, an archaeologist, was well aware of this unwanted guest in their house, even though he never saw it personally. After returning from school a few days later, her daughter, Bernice, told her that she had witnessed a monster that resembled a werewolf leap from the stairs and into the hallway. She was driven to follow it as it hurried towards the back of the house on heavy animal feet. At the end of the hallway, in the music room, it vanished. The wolf was thought to be related in some way to the wolf who slaughtered sheep in Hexham 
in the winter of 1904. The residents of Hexham, who endured the wrath of the wolf, were accustomed to seeing odd wolf things. The episode was an escaped wolf from a local zoo who murdered sheep before being struck by a passing train, despite being quickly mythologised. Naturally, a lot of people thought the wolf was still out there and had been called by the power of the heads in the 1970s to exact some kind of ancient and mystical vengeance. Ross also reportedly mentioned experiencing a chilly presence, having her study door suddenly burst open and apparently seeing another dark figure and the persistent feeling that someone was standing next to her. Dr Ross connected all of these occurrences to the Hexham heads after learning about the Dodds family experience. Dr Ross concluded that the Hexham heads were to blame for these terrifying occurrences. The events ended right away, when she got rid of them from her home. The day the heads were removed from the house, everybody, including my husband, said it was like a cloud had lifted, and since then there hasn't really been a trace of any paranormal activity. It now appeared that two expert geologists would examine these artefacts, for want of a better word, and yet reach very opposite judgments about the materials they were constructed of. Professor Hobson of Southampton University examined them when Anne Ross asked him to, and his conclusion was that both heads were made from the same material, a very coarse sandstone with rounded quartz grains, with nearby sources being indicated. As with all serious scientific inquiries, a second study produced a totally different result. Dr Douglas Robson of Newcastle University conducted the study, which was published in Screeton's book. It concluded that the substance from which the heads had been constructed is a manufactured cement, and that it is unlike any natural sandstone. The latter appears to have been based on the intrusive removal of a sample for examination, whereas the former and earlier study appears to have been based on microscopic work and limited visual inspection. It would appear that the sample pieces no longer seem to exist, which is unfortunate because they might now be examined so much more conclusively. It is difficult to understand how two studies of identical things could result in two such different identifications of the substances involved. For what seems like an eternity, geologists and archaeologists studied the heads. It was hotly contested whether they were authentically antique or contemporary fabrications. The tale then included several more professionals. The heads were given to the care of Don Robbins in 1977. Robbins was a controversial inorganic chemist who dabbled in a number of earth mysteries pertaining to things like the magnetic properties of stones and megaliths. His most well-known work is probably the book The Secret Language of Stone, which includes information about the heads. Along with Anne Ross, he co-authored a book on the Lindo Man bog corpse called The Life and Death of a Druid Prince. Don Robbins, who has investigated the theory that mineral artefacts might preserve visual impressions of the person who formed them. In addition, he advanced the theory of the stone tape or cinema of time, which proposes that certain occurrences might be caused by information stored in specific locations and things. 
the concept that the environment in which the event occurs leaves an imprint that might be played again in memory when specific events occur, such as a specific weather condition, times of day or year, or even that a specific individual is sensitive to such recordings and gives them life, and they play back. According to him, some minerals naturally possess the ability to retain this knowledge as electrical energy that is encoded in the lattice structure of their crystals. Dr. Robbins summarized this idea by saying that a mineral structure may be thought of as a fluctuating energy network with limitless potential for electrical information storage and transformation. These additional physical dimensions might eventually lead to a comprehension of the kinetic images embedded in stone. Robbins was also intrigued by the reports of sounds that reportedly accompanied the occurrences and had been brought on by the heads themselves. He made a comparison to the wolf, a fierce and frightening entity from Norse mythology who was also kind to humans when not offended. There have been several accounts of sightings of this creature in the Shetlands, some of which date back only a few years. Robbins rescued the heads from a box in Hobson's office in Southampton University. When he put the heads in his car to drive them home and started the engine, Dr. Robbins's curiosity in the heads led him to agree to take custody of them himself. The dashboard's electrical systems abruptly stopped working. He sternly ordered them to stop. As he turned to face the heads, the automobile began. Robbins felt like they were always keeping an eye on him. He asserted that the girl's head was without a doubt the source of any effect the heads held. He believed that they were staring at him, which made him feel quite uneasy. So he ultimately turned them around so that he could not see them. While doing so, he got the clear sense that the girl's eyes slid round to keep watching him. Unfortunately, Dr. Robbins did not experience any paranormal activities that may have been triggered by the heads. However, there were a few odd occurrences. He talked to the heads one day as he was leaving home. He returned to the residence shortly after to get a book he had left there. It was windy and cold outside. The atmosphere inside his study was almost electric, and he believed that the girl's head was responsible for the suffocating, breathless aspect. He hastily fled the home. Upon his return later, he discovered nothing out of the ordinary had occurred in his absence. The skulls were handed from expert to expert before falling into Southampton University's hands in 1978 and were promptly lost thereafter. It has been long believed that the heads were sent to a Mr. Hyde in February 1978 so that he might do some dowsing experiments with them. They have not been seen since. Today, the guardian and precise position of the heads are unknown. The Hexham head history is fascinating. These allegedly archaic artefacts were discovered in suburban Hexham and in the six years that followed, they attracted an aggregation of odd and fascinating people like a magnet. The Hexham heads raise a lot of intriguing issues for us. They may be interpreted as proof of the stone tape theory, 
that something in the quartz inside the heads was really able to catch a memory or an emotion. They were distributed amongst many experts, all of which could not definitively prove or disprove their age or intention. Leaving bewilderment in their wake, they were viewed as both useless forgeries and as archaeological artefacts. Then they vanished. The Hexham heads may never be discovered. Links to our social media and email addresses are in our bio. And please feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, and even suggest future episodes that we can cover. As we reach the conclusion of this journey, we bid farewell to this chapter of As Yet Unexplained. With a hint of sadness, but with the promise of a thrilling return, the end of this series marks only the beginning of a new era as we look forward to unveiling our sixth series in November. Get ready for even more captivating and mysterious adventures as we continue our quest to unravel the secrets of the unknown. Accessibility is of the utmost importance to us and we are dedicated to making our podcast available to all. All past episodes are available for free on all major platforms, as well as on our website. Additionally, if you enjoy the music that we have specially composed for this series, you can listen to it in its entirety on Bandcamp, free of charge. We are deeply grateful for your time and attention, and thank you for being part of our journey of discovery. Your support means everything to us, and we look forward to our continued exploration into the realm of the unexplained. Thanks for listening. If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings, Time slips, cryptids, cults, and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com or search Occultaria of Albion wherever you find your favorite podcasts. End transmission.